Recorded books and one-click digital present Faller by Will McIntosh Narrated by me, George Gordell Chapter 1 He tried to open his eyes, but they felt glued shut. So he just lay there, exhausted, listening to the screams. His cheek was against a hard surface, pebbles pressed into his skin. A dog barked nearby. Dog. The word burst in his mind, fresh, like he was giving birth to it. Yet he knew what a dog was. When he thought the word, a picture formed. Four-legged animal, fur, wagging tail. His mind felt slightly clearer, his energy returning. He dragged his eyes open. The world was incredibly bright, remarkably colorful. Someone ran by in green and white sneakers, sideways, as if running on a wall. Except he was the one who was sideways. As he managed to sit upright, the world tilted and spun for a moment before settling into crisp focus. He was surrounded by tall buildings. Cars and trucks were scattered on the street. None were moving. Thick black smoke rose from behind the closest buildings. A few feet away, a pink-haired woman was doubled over, clutching her head in her hands. There were colorful tattoos of flowers on her forearms. What is happening? she wailed. I don't know. The woman looked up, startled. Do you know me? Do you know who I am? No. Do you know who I am? The woman shook her head. Something had happened. The confusion he felt, the screaming, this wasn't normal. He needed to figure out what was going on. Maybe he could find help. Police. When he pressed his palm to the pavement to try to stand, Lancing pain shot down his thumb and into his wrist. There was a deep slash across the pad of the thumb caked with dried blood. There was more dried blood on the tip of his index finger and under the fingernail. This must have happened before, he realized. Still shaky, he stood, looked around. There was a little silver cart with a yellow umbrella nearby. The word for it sprang to mind, hot dog stand. A red and white bus sat parked along the curb. A few blocks away, a cluster of people stood with their backs to him. He went to see what they were doing. There were no buildings beyond the place where the crowd was standing. The sky grew wider as he approached, until he merged into the crowd and saw that the world simply ended a few feet from where they stood. There was nothing beyond but sky. Ragged asphalt and concrete marked the edge of the world. A concrete sewer pipe jutted from the dark earth below, spewing water. He couldn't say how, but he sensed this too was wrong. The sky felt too big, although he knew skies were enormous. A white-haired man knelt off to one side of the crowd on a stoop that led up to thin air. 
He was studying a small photograph, the contents of a wallet spread beside him. The old man looked up as he approached, held the photo up for him to see. It showed the man in a black suit smiling, clutching an old woman's hand. I found this in my pocket. They must be people I know. It took him a moment to realize the old guy didn't know he was one of the people in the photo. That's you, he said, pointing. That's me? The old man held the photo closer, studied it. That's me, he sounded surprised. He wondered if there was anything in his own pockets. Checking the front ones first, he pulled out a folded food wrapper and a toy soldier. There was a photo in one of his back pockets, a dark-haired woman with freckles, grinning, hugging a round-faced, sandy-haired man. They looked happier than anyone could possibly look. He showed the picture to the old man, who pointed, That's you! He studied the man in the picture. How could that face be his? It was a stranger's face. He preferred looking at the woman. She had bright, intelligent green eyes that looked ever so slightly crossed, arms like flamingo legs. He scanned the faces in the nearby crowd, hoping to spot the woman among them. His gaze paused on an old woman, hands buried in the pockets of a black sweater, standing at the edge of the crowd. He glanced at the picture in the old man's lap. Hey, there she is. The old man stood, squinted into the crowd. Where? There. He grasped the man by the elbow, led him to the woman. She turned as they approached, her eyebrows pinched. The old man studied the photo, looked at the woman, studied the photo again. He held the photo up so the woman could see it. I think that's you in the photo, with me. Relief spread across the woman's face. Do you know me? I don't, the old man admitted. But we must be something to each other, don't you think? In the picture we're holding hands. I don't understand what's happening. She touched her face. Am I dead? Is that it? I don't think we're dead. No, the old guy said. He was glad these people had found each other. He wished he could find the woman in his photo so they could face whatever was happening together. I'm going to look for this woman. He held up his photo. The old man nodded. Thank you. I won't forget the kindness you showed a total stranger. As he set off along the edge, he took a closer look at the other things in his pocket. The thumb-sized green toy soldier was connected to a toy parachute by a half-dozen threads. As he opened the folded-up food wrapper, he stopped walking. There was something drawn on the back in rusty brown, the crude shapes smeared and splotched. A series of ovals ran down the length of the page with an X over the bottom one. He moved his thumb, which was obscuring a second image in the bottom right-hand corner of the page, a triangle with two numerals in it, a one followed by a three. He studied the dried blood caking his thumb, set it beside one of the ovals. 
It was the same rust color as the writing. He'd cut his thumb and scrawled those ovals on the food wrapper with his own blood, then put it in his pocket. He'd left a message to himself. If he'd sliced open his thumb to write it, he must have known something was about to happen, and the message must be important. He studied the ovals, the triangle with the numerals inside, and tried to make sense of them, but it meant nothing to him. Carefully folding the wrapper, he put it back in his pocket and walked on. Crowds were gathered along the edge of every street. He searched the faces, seeking the dark-haired woman. The crowds thinned with each block, and eventually he came upon a deserted, ruined part of the world. Only a few buildings stood. The rest had been reduced to piles of steel and concrete. Wading through the wreckage, he picked up blackened bricks, Milton Electronics. Vehicles had been crushed flat, fires had raged. There were no bodies, at least none he could see, and no smoke, so the destruction wasn't recent. Feeling exhausted and overwhelmed, he squatted, closed his eyes. He was in serious trouble. All of them were. But he didn't understand that trouble. Nothing made sense. None of it fit together. What was there to do but keep looking, both for the woman in the picture and for answers? He moved on, staying close to the edge. Hungry, his throat dry, he found himself back where he'd started. The world was a circle, and smaller than he'd imagined. Most of the crowd was gone, including the man and woman he'd reunited. They'd all no doubt gone to find food and a place to sleep. He decided he'd better do the same. Chapter Two Two big-eyed children sitting on the steps outside an apartment building gazed up as he approached. Have you seen this woman? He held up the photo. They shook their heads in unison. Okay, well, thank you anyway. He felt guilty leaving the children on their own. But there were so many children on their own. He'd met most of them over the past few days as he walked to every corner of the world asking everyone he met if they'd seen the woman in the photo. His hope of finding her was fading, and as it did, looking at the photo became painful. He longed to see her, even though he had no idea who she was. An orange sheet of paper rolling on the breeze blew up against his shin. He peeled it off. It pictured four men, three holding musical instruments, guitar, saxophone, trumpet. Above the picture of the men were boldly printed letters. He squinted, trying to make the letters speak. He knew the letters, knew which was A, which was Q, and he knew they said something, but no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't make them speak. Some words came so easily. Why wouldn't the name of the woman in the photo come to him? Why wouldn't his own? Maybe he should pick a name, for now he was tired of feeling nameless. He folded the paper and added it to the day's collection of clues stuffed in his pockets. As he headed home, he considered names, finally settling on Clue, because as far as he could tell, he was the only person looking for them. 
Everyone else was focused on finding food and clothes. And weapons. Clue stood muttering to himself, surrounded by things he'd amassed. He should be out searching for food, because the howling emptiness in his stomach made it difficult to think, but first he wanted to study everything at once, see if it sparked an insight. The best clue was still the blood drawing, which he knew so well by now it was all but etched on his eyeballs. The triangle with the numbers in it might have been a flag, because its shortest side, the vertical side, extended downward an inch or so. It was hard to tell, though, because the drawing was so poorly executed. There was a thumbprint smearing the top circle. He couldn't imagine what was so important about these circles that he would use his own blood to draw them. Beside the indecipherable drawing was a length of pipe, one end ragged and twisted as if it had been torn by a giant, the other end neatly sawed using a hacksaw from the toolbox Clue had found. Sundry papers, magazines, and books filled out his collection. One book in particular had photos of the world that included streets and buildings that didn't exist, set out beyond the edge of the world. It was possible these streets were only make-believe, like the images of endless bodies of water and fantastic animals he'd found. But there was another possibility. Maybe the world had once been bigger, and something happened to make it smaller. The pipe was torn as if it had been ripped in half with incredible force. Shouting outside broke his concentration. He went to the window of the apartment he'd claimed. Men carrying rifles, axes, pieces of wood were leading a dozen or more children down the street. He'd seen these men before, or others like them, stockpiling tons of food and supplies in a building with heavy steel doors and bars in the lower windows. Clue didn't understand what they'd want with children, though. Grabbing a jacket he'd found in the front closet, he hurried down the seven flights of stairs. By the time he got to street level, the gathering was out of sight. Hands in his pockets, he turned in the direction they'd been heading. He should be searching for food. The stores were empty. People were going door to door through every building, smashing vending machines, emptying cupboards in unoccupied apartments, and sometimes in occupied ones. The food must have come from somewhere. Crew had yet to find any place where cans of food could be produced or fresh food was growing. Food grew that much he knew. Apples grew on trees and carrots grew underground. But where? If he could figure out what had happened, maybe he could solve the food problem. If not, this was going to become a nightmare before much longer. Clue thought he heard gunshots. He stopped, listened. In the silence he heard the gunshots, clearly along with screams. Shrill, terrified, children's screams. Taking off at a sprint, he tried to imagine what would terrify children like that. The screams grew louder as he turned a corner around a brown brick building. He stopped short. Men were pointing weapons at a crowd of onlookers. Other men were pushing children off the edge. What are you doing? Clue ran toward the edge as a screaming little boy clung to a fat man's leg. 
The men pried the boy's little fingers until the boy lost his grip and fell onto his back. The man kicked the flailing boy over the edge. Clue reached the onlookers who were shouting and crying for the men to stop. Seven or eight onlookers lay dead at the feet of the men wielding the weapons. What are you doing? What are you doing? Clue shouted, pushing through the crowd. They're saying there's not enough food for everyone, an Asian woman said. We have to stop them. It was too late, though. The children were gone. The men stood where they were, the front line with weapons at the ready, the ones near the edge, the ones who'd done the pushing, simply standing, hands hanging at their sides. The faces of a few were streaked with tears, others were grimacing as if they'd just eaten something rotten. A commotion rose behind Clue. He turned, craned his neck. More men, leading more children. Out of the way, one of them shouted. Move or we'll shoot. Shouting at the men, the crowd moved aside until Clue, the Asian woman, and two other men stood alone blocking their path. The children looked terrified and confused, but clearly had no idea what these men planned to do to them. Two shots rang out. The man to Clue's left jerked and dropped to the asphalt, a bloody hole in his sternum. Gasping and writhing, he clutched the hole, grimacing in pain. Clue pressed his hand to the Asian woman's shoulder, urged her toward the crowd. They merged into the crowd as the children were led past. Clue sank to his knees as children were thrown off. He covered his ears. Their screams were intolerable. They were going to kill him just as surely as the men's bullets. Please don't. Please don't, he said, his palms clapped over his ears. He had to stop this. He'd rather die than live through what was happening. He struggled to his feet, woozy with shock, and pushed through the crowd. Once again, it was too late. They were gone. The only sounds were people sobbing. This is for your good as well as ours, one of the men by the edge shouted. Someone has to do it or we'll all starve. He was tall, young, with black circles below his hungry eyes. A hundred shouted replies, curses, entreaties blended into an incoherent howl from the onlookers. The man folded his arms across his chest, turned his back on the crowd, shaking his head as if to say they were all fools. The men with the weapons stood their ground, which Clue was certain meant more children were coming. What were they going to do? Round up every child and throw them over the edge? Would they move to the weakest adults after that? Probably. He heard a child crying. A moment later, more children came around the corner, led by more armed men. No. Oh, no. Clue put his hands on his knees and leaned over to throw up. Nothing came, though his stomach roiled violently. If he charged the men, they would shoot him down, and that would be the end of it. He could commit suicide in that way, or he could watch, or he could run away. Those were his choices. He decided to run. If there was a way he could save even one child, he would stay and suffer through this horror, but why witness it if he couldn't save even one? Clue froze. He straightened, eyed the advancing line of kids. Could he save one? Just one? He thought of the old man on that first day, showing the old woman the photo from his wallet. Clue pulled his photo from his pocket and marched toward the children. Three rifles spun to point at him. She's with me. He waved the photo, pointed at the closest child, a young girl. 
I found this photo of the two of us in my pocket. He went right up to the girl who had brown skin and came up to his armpit. I found you. I finally found you. He gripped her elbow and led her toward the crowd. Get back, a gray-haired, bearded man shouted, rifle raised to his cheek. She's mine, you idiot, Clue shouted back, waving the photo. His heart was hammering, his eardrums throbbing. If we're in a photo together, she must be my daughter or something. As he led the girl toward the crowd, the man with the rifle tensed. Clue grimaced, anticipating the gunshot. He reached the crowd. The Asian woman gripped the young girl's other hand. Let's get her out of here before they change their minds. Wait, the girl tugged to free her hand from Clue's. We have to get Violet. We can't, Clue said. I'm sorry, it won't work a second time. The girl stood her ground, eyes defiant. Violet's my best friend. Clue swept her up in his arms and took off. What are they doing? The girl asked, looking back as the screaming began. Why are they crying? Violet! Don't look, Clue said. Close your eyes. The Asian woman led the way, turning left and right, making it difficult for anyone to follow. Finally, she led them through a smashed-out display window into a large clothing store. She wound between display racks. When they were near the back, she motioned them to sit among jackets scattered on the floor. Clue set the girl down, his legs rubbery. The screams still rang in his ears. His chest hitched as he took a deep, rattling breath trying to get hold of himself. What did they do to Violet? The girl asked. They're terrible men, Clue said. I know that, she said. What did they do to her? Did they... Her voice dropped to a whisper. Did they push her? Yes. The girl nodded. They're going after anyone who can't defend themselves, the woman said. They emptied out a retirement home on the other side. What is going on? Clue asked. There must be a reason this is happening. How do we find it, though? No one remembers. He emptied his pocket, unfolded the food wrapper, and handed it to the woman. I drew this with my own blood right before... He cast about for the right words. Before what? Before. Can you make any sense of it? While the woman examined the drawing, Clue showed the toy soldier to the girl. Watch this. He bunched the soldier's parachute in his fist and underhanded it toward the store's high ceiling. It floated placidly to the ground. It made the girl smile, so he held it out to her. Want to try? She tossed it in the air, then scampered to catch it. He wondered why he'd had a toy in his pocket. Did he have a child somewhere? Was he or she being pushed off the edge at this very moment? Or was it the parachute he was supposed to pay attention to? Do you have something you called yourself? Clue asked the girl. She'd called her friend Violet. Maybe she had a name, too. All the girls picked flower names, she said. I'm Daisy. The boys picked animals. Hello, Daisy. I call myself Clue. He'd saved this girl, this one delightful little girl with a leaf tangled in her curly hair and the eyes of a fighter. It is enough. It had to be. He had to put the others out of his mind. The woman handed the drawing to him, shaking her head. I don't understand it either. What should I call you? It felt good to have people to talk to. Clue had been too busy to realize how lonely he was. I don't know. Let's see. She looked at the ceiling. 
If the girls are picking flower names, why don't you call me Orchid? Orchid it is. I'm so hungry, Daisy said. Clue looked at Orchid. I have two cans of tuna left. That's all. I'm willing to share. Orchid nodded. I have some. Come on. Clue followed her out to the street, where she pointed at the building that towered over the rest. We have to climb, though. I'm on the 41st floor. Clue nodded, gazing at the tower. It was gray and came to a needle point at the top. Smart move. Higher would be safer. Who would climb 41 flights if they didn't have to? I have about two dozen cans and packages. I'm willing to share it with a man who'd risk his life to save a child. She raised her eyebrows, which were nothing but thin lines. Why don't we pick up your tuna and pool our resources? The thought of having a companion, an ally to navigate this hell, sent a flood of gratitude through him. Sounds good to me. I need to bring some other things, too. I'm collecting clues to try to figure this out. Fair enough, Mr. Clue, Orchid said. There's plenty of room on the 41st floor. It's an office complex, not an apartment. No need to worry about noisy neighbors. They did have to worry about what to do when their food ran out, though. Maybe they were vending machines higher up in Orchid's tower. Whatever they did, though, the food was going to run out before long. Then things were going to get very bad. They were going to get terrible. Chapter 3 Trying to stay out of sight, Clue looked out through the shattered revolving doors at the street. Eight people were standing around or sitting on cars. At least three had guns. The rest carried pipes or knives. Night or day, there were always people on the street. Now was as good a time as any to go out. He turned to Orchid and Daisy. Don't look straight at anyone, but don't let them think you're afraid. Act like you know just where you're going. Clue wiped his palm on his shirt, got a better grip on the butcher knife. Orchid was clutching hers so hard her knuckles were white. Here we go. They stepped through the door frame and walked single file, Daisy in the middle. A tall, sunburned man noticed them, pointed them out. The group stopped talking. They turned to look at Clue, Daisy, and Orchid, who were all wearing tight-fitting clothes to make it obvious they had no food and carried nothing except the knives. After conferring for a moment, the group turned away. The tightness in Clue's shoulders relaxed. They weren't worth the bullets. He didn't think it would be much longer before everyone would be worth the bullets for the meat on their bones. But for now, if you could avoid being rounded up and thrown off the edge by Steele's gang, you weren't worth the bullets if you had no food. Just thinking the word food made Clue's stomach clench his mouth water. Hunger was nothing like he thought it would be. He expected to feel bad, but was unprepared for the terrible, maddening yearning. No matter how hard he tried to think of other things, his thoughts returned to savory gravy, hamburgers on soft buns, chocolate chip cookies, buttery crackers, chicken noodle soup. His head pounded from hunger. He stepped over a body, a woman with red hair, her arms and shoulders covered in freckles. She had no visible wounds, 
she'd probably died of the diarrhea sickness. Orchid insisted they could avoid it if they boiled the water they got from the lake in the park. Clue didn't see how she could know that, but then again he didn't know how anyone knew anything. So they boiled their water. This way, Orchid pointed down a narrow street, partially blocked by a delivery truck. In the distance, someone was screaming. It was one of the bad screams, not someone hungry or sick, but someone who was being hurt. They squeezed past the delivery truck. The it thirty or forty bodies hung from light poles and power lines by lengths of white plastic-coated wire. Clue reached out to cover Daisy's eyes, but she pushed his hand away. He led the way, his head down, passing through the shadows cast by the bodies. A flash of movement caught his eye. Four people, men and women, coming out of a tenement building to their right. The gray-haired man in front was carrying a rifle. Clue froze as the man noticed him half-raised the rifle. You! The man lowered the rifle. Clue squinted, studying him. It was the old man he'd met at the edge on day one. He laughed with relief, gave the man a little salute. Good to see you again. Who is that? Orchid asked. Clue explained as they met under the feet of some of the people who'd been hanged. What a lovely day, huh? Clue said after introductions were made. The old man, who called himself Poppy, smiled tightly at Clue's attempted humor. You searching for food? Clue nodded. We're down to two cans of beans. Poppy folded his arms, looked up at the bodies hanging above the street. The trouble is you never know if somewhere has already been searched until you see the doors being kicked in. We're all searching the same places over and over. What scared Clue was the possibility that everywhere had been searched and there was no more food. The woman with you in the picture, is she still alive, he meant to say, but he couldn't. Poppy shook his head. Disease, ten days ago. I'm sorry for your loss, Orchid said. Clue nodded. At least she hadn't been hung or stabbed or tossed off the edge. He wondered how Poppy had met up with these other people. One was young, somewhere between a man and a boy. The two women had some gray hair. Will you excuse us for a second? Poppy drew his comrades out of earshot, and a brief exchange ensued in low, urgent tones. Clue wondered what they were talking about. Poppy turned. There are nine of us. We share what we find, and we defend each other. Do you want to join us? Yes. Clue said before the last words were out of Poppy's mouth. He looked to Orchid, raised his eyebrows. Yes, thank you so much, all of you. Don't thank us, it's mostly self-interest, Poppy said. No one bothers us if we move in bands and we're armed. He patted the shoulder of the young, pimple-faced man standing beside him. There's strength in numbers. Chapter 4 Eight big, multicolored balls hung from the high museum ceiling. One was orange-red, one a mottled blue and white. One had a ring around it, like a halo except around the middle. They meant something, these balls. They were important. Clue went back to working on his parachute. The seam was crooked, the stitches not as evenly spaced as on the toy soldier's parachute. 
There you are, a voice behind Clue said. Poppy was standing in the doorway, hands on his hips. I thought you were going on the foraging run. The muscles in Clue's neck tensed. They had more than enough people. I decided to work on the shoot instead. Poppy eyed the shoot. Don't waste too much time fooling around with that thing. We need to stay focused on not starving. There was an awkward silence, during which Clue vacillated between anger and shame. He resented being chided. He didn't need Poppy telling him what his priorities should be. At the same time, he wasn't bringing in as much food as most of the others. I've been thinking about the things in my pocket on day one. Every man I speak to found a wallet in his pocket, with one of those laminated cards with their picture on it. I didn't. Poppy shrugged. So? I think I got rid of mine on purpose. I think I wanted to make sure I only found three things in my pocket. Who picked up the toy soldier? There's a reason I put this in my pocket. I think it has to do with the parachute. What the hell are you going to do with the parachute? Poppy threw his hands in the air. Jump off a roof? Clue looked at his hands. I don't know yet. Because we can't eat it, Poppy went on. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we've got 87 cans and packages of food in the lockup, and after that... He folded his arms and huffed. I vouched for you. Please don't make me regret that. It was true he had. Clue would be dead by now if not for Poppy. So would Orchid and Daisy. Clue set down the parachute. Fine, what can I do? Poppy thought for a moment. Boil some drinking water, then choose five cans out of the pantry for tonight's meal and divide it up. Absolutely. Clue rolled up the chute, tucked it under his arm. As he passed, Poppy clapped him on the arm. Thank you. Clue paused. I'm not loafing. We need to figure out what happened. Until we understand the problem, we won't know where to look for a solution. And if we don't find a solution, most of us are going to die. No matter how hard we look, there's only so much food out there. Once it's gone, there aren't enough rats, pigeons, and bugs to keep more than a hundred people alive. And you know the steels are going to make damn sure those hundred people come from among their numbers. Poppy rested a hand on Clue's shoulder. How does making a parachute bring us any closer to understanding what happened? Clue squeezed his eyes closed. I sliced my thumb open and made a drawing with my blood. I put it in my pocket along with a parachute and a photo. I must have had a reason. Without waiting for an answer, Clue headed for the pantry. First making sure no strangers were watching through the enormous front window of the museum's ground floor, Clue retrieved the stepladder from against the high marble wall. He set it up in front of the massive elephant, posed with its trunk raised in the air as if charging, and climbed to the elephant's open mouth to retrieve the key to the pantry. Lighting a torch from a pile set on the floor, he passed through a corridor filled with smaller animals into a cavernous space filled with dinosaur skeletons. Beyond was a staircase leading to the lockup. Clue unlocked the massive padlock, set it on a shelf, and slid the key into his back pocket. When the tribe moved into the museum, they'd found the padlock already on the huge steel door, and the key on a ring of keys in a desk. 
It had been the most imposing padlock Clue had ever seen. The cans and packages were spread along the shelves, 87 of them. It wasn't much, but to people starving on the streets, it was a treasure. He hated going outside, seeing the people lying in the streets, too weak to do anything but beg. With his arms full of cans, Clue went around the corner to set them down on the table that served as their makeshift kitchen so he could relock the pantry. Down the hall from the table, Clue noticed a painting he hadn't before. Colored balls in the night sky, surrounded by a gorgeous swath of bright stars. They were the exact same colors as the balls hanging from the ceiling in the other room. Maybe these balls belonged in the sky? The thing was, he'd looked into the night sky a dozen times and never seen anything but stars in the moon. Had they disappeared as part of whatever had happened? And what about all these animals? He knew they were supposed to be alive, walking around. Why were there no elephants or tigers in the world? So many questions. Clue sat, picked up the can opener, and began preparing plates to bring down to the whale room, where they ate their meals. He hoped like hell they'd found more food. Chapter 5 Orchid went to salvage more wood for the fire, which was down to crackling embers. The light in the museum's cavernous room had grown so dim, Clue could barely see the giant whale hanging over them. Daisy was curled against him, face buried in the crook of his elbow, crying softly. I know, he whispered. For some reason the hunger was worst just after they ate. There was something about getting just a taste that set off a terrible, terrible yearning for more. What if we opened one more can? Clue asked. There's a can of peaches in the pantry. Peaches, Daisy cried, raising her head. Poppy gave him a withering look. What's one can? Clue asked. Why not? Fish said. He looked far too young to have such a dark beard. We had a good day. We killed four rats. The other five members of the tribe chimed in. Shaking his head, Poppy said, All right, if that's what everyone wants. Who am I to argue? They headed toward the pantry, led by Poppy, who'd pulled a board out of the fire to serve as a torch. Orchid fell into step beside Clue. You know, I've been thinking about your drawing. What if it means nothing? Clue gave her a puzzled look. What if it was just a final offering to some gods you believed in back then, or maybe we were all delirious? Clue smiled. He wondered if Orchid's words were directed at the photograph as much as the drawing. Maybe the believers are right, and there was nothing before day one. Maybe the gods drew the picture and cut my finger as a test of my faith. Orchid huffed impatiently. The thing is, we have no idea what was going on, so why worry about the drawing? Or the photo. Orchid was bright and beautiful, and hadn't been shy in suggesting they become more than friends. But strange as it was, he pined for a woman he didn't remember, who, as far as the evidence was concerned, was as mythical as living elephants in the ocean. He couldn't love Orchid because... 
he still loved that woman. Wait, Orchid said, sounding exasperated as they reached the door to the next room. He waited patiently while Orchid backtracked to the other end of the room, then retraced her steps, counting quietly. Evidently, Orchid had broken one of her rules. She had to take an even number of steps crossing a room. Ku had no idea why she insisted on following so many arbitrary rules, but there was no harm in it. A shout up ahead sent Clue and Orchid racing through the doorway down the narrow hall leading to the pantry. Fish was squatting in front of the locker's open door. Butter was on her knees, sobbing. The locker was empty, completely cleaned out. It was Steele's tribe, I'll bet anything, Fish said. He was standing in the empty locker, arms folded. And we're not getting it back. Poppy said, there are at least 200 of them. The weight of what had happened began to penetrate Clue's shock. It was a death sentence. Scavengers had picked over just about every nook and cranny in the world. There were no big undiscovered caches left in the wild, and they couldn't get by on rats, cats, pigeons, and bugs alone. We can steal it back at night just like they did to us, Fish said. They'd know it was us, and they'd kill us, Orchid said, her voice a monotone, drained of hope. Where's the padlock? Poppy asked, looking around. What do you mean? Rex asked. They broke her off somehow. Holding the torch close, Poppy examined the brackets the padlock had been threaded through on the door and wall. But where is it? Why would they carry off a broken padlock? He looked up. Who was last to go in here? I pulled out the day's rations this afternoon, Clue said. But I locked it afterward. That's what you're... Clue hesitated. He remembered pulling out the cans and pushing the door most of the way closed with his foot until he could set the cans down on the table and return. Clue squeezed his eyes closed. Oh, no. Oh, no. Poppy reached over to the shelf held up the open padlock. He'd noticed that picture and got to wondering. He'd never gone back to lock the door. Clue looked at Daisy, standing with her forehead pressed against the doorway, and clenched his eyes shut again. Oh, God, I've killed us all. No one disagreed. This couldn't happen. He couldn't watch Daisy starve, knowing it was his fault, an orchid, and the rest of his tribe. I'm so sorry. He had to figure out a way to get their food back. But how could he? How could anyone? Chapter Six Clue limped up the dark stairwell, feeling his way along. His ankle was throbbing. His sneaker felt too tight, which meant the ankle was swelling. He didn't want to stop and see how bad it was. It didn't matter how bad it was, he had to keep at it until he got it right. The toy paratrooper's chute opened every time without fail if he folded it the right way, while his hadn't inflated once. It might have to do with his weight versus the toy, but he didn't think so. He suspected he wasn't traveling fast enough when he opened the chute. It made sense. He could get the chute to open by dragging it along the ground, but only if he ran very fast or there was a strong breeze. The air was what pulled the chute open. Pushing open the heavy door, he raised his hand, 
to shield his eyes from the bright midday sun. The black tar roof was steaming hot and sticky underfoot. His head down to avoid the sun, Clue went right to the edge. When he saw how much higher he was, he took a half step back. He eyed the pile of mattresses in the lot, now five stories below instead of three. From ground level, the pile looked huge, but from up here, it seemed like a very small target surrounded by a lot of very hard ground. Daisy, who was standing beside the mattresses, waved up at him. Clue waved back, somewhat less enthusiastically. This had to work, or he was going to get badly hurt even if he hit the mattresses. Three figures appeared around the corner of the building next door and strolled into the lot. Their bodies looked strange, flattened and foreshortened by Clue's bird's eye view. He was wasting time. He tilted his head left and right, loosening the tense muscles in his neck, shook both hands at the wrist, then stepped onto the low ledge, which was two bricks wide. One final time he studied the pile of mattresses, mentally rehearsed the procedure. Leap out, let yourself fall at least two stories to build up speed, then pull the ripcord. If the chute doesn't open, curl up into a ball. Laughter drifted from below. The three figures were watching him. Let them watch. Let them laugh. Clue took a deep breath and leaped. For an instant, he hung in the air, then he plummeted, the whistling of the air growing louder. He delayed as long as he could bear, then pulled the cord. He felt the chute jump out of the pack, heard it whoosh. The harness jerked, sending pain shooting across his ribs to his armpits. He looked up. The parachute was partially inflated, rotating slowly as the lines twisted around each other. He was looking up when he hit the mattresses. He hit awkwardly, and spun off, slammed chest first into the dirt with an oof. The parachute floated down over him as the onlookers roared with laughter. Clue jumped up, whooping with joy. He dug himself out from under the parachute, limped to Daisy, lifted her in the air. Did you see that? I did, I did, Daisy laughed. She was far too thin, her jutting cheeks nothing but bones lying under a thin sheaf of skin, her eyes sunken. He was going to fix that. It had taken a catastrophe for Clue to realize the point of the parachute, but now he understood. Clue set Daisy down, spun to face their visitors, whom he now recognized as Shoeless, Red, and Runner, part of the relatively harmless subway tribe. Get your cans ready, gentlemen. It won't be long now. You've got to be joking, Red said, pointing at the sky. You might as well have filled that pack with bricks all the good it did you. Red's companions laughed appreciatively. Go ahead and laugh, Clue said, unable to stop grinning. As long as you spread the word, I will jump, but there has to be a crowd of at least two hundred paying a can apiece. Oh, sure, you bet, Red said, his tone making it clear he thought Clue was a self-deluded idiot. That only made Clue wanted more. He would do this. He would save his people. The parachute still needed work, and he had to figure out how to keep the harness from digging into his armpits. All he had to go on there was the toys painted on harness, but he'd figure it out. Clue, Runner said, laughing. More like no clue, clueless, having a clue. More like faller, Red said. Red's friends burst out laughing, as if it were the most hilarious thing they'd ever heard. Clue liked the name, though. 
He liked it better than Clue. Faller. It felt right. It suited him. From now on, he would be Faller. Chapter 7 The quickest route to the tower was straight through the heart of the city, but with so many people following, it was easier to wind along the edge of the world where there were fewer rusting cars blocking their path, less trash underfoot. Fowler walked close to the edge, just shy of the point where tripping on a brick might send him tumbling into eternity. He had two reasons for walking so close. First, it unnerved the people following him. Second, the vastness of the sky soothed him. And Fowler needed soothing. Doubt and anxiety were growing with each step. Don't do this, Orchid said. We'll find another way. She carried on tracking her steps as she spoke, poking out thumb, forefinger, thumb, forefinger, so she knew if she was on an odd step or even. People are going to remember this day like they remember day one, Daisy said, taking twice as many steps to keep up with Faller and Orchid. Orchid threw back her head, and laughed a bit more heartily than Fowler thought necessary. I don't think Fowler plunging to his death is in quite the same category as day one. I think it is, Daisy said, splitting off momentarily to move around a lamppost canted at an angle. Everyone will talk about this for years. This will be remembered about as well as when old Krabby got pushed out a fifth-story window by a dog trying to get the beans Krabby was eating. Can we stay on topic? We're talking about how people will sing songs about me. Fowler looked pointedly at Orchid. And can you please stop referring to this as me plunging to my death? Orchid grabbed his arms, yanked him to a stop. I'm trying to paint an image for you to bring you to your senses. Her dark eyes, shaped like two slivers of moon, searched his. Because I care about you. More than you know. Please, don't do this. She squeezed his arm. I'll be fine. He tried to sound reassuring, despite his own doubts. And if he wasn't fine, at least he will have died making amends for the terrible mess he'd created. Come on, everyone's waiting. They came to an inlet where a ledge of jagged asphalt dropped off, revealing blue sky and pink-white clouds below. Fowler veered around it, eyeing the broken ends of huge pipes jutting out into space from the rock face, the gaping hole even farther down that was the abrupt end of one of the subway tunnels crisscrossing the world. With the tower looming, they cut toward the heart of the city, away from the edge. Weeds plucked at Fowler's pants as they cut along a shattered sidewalk past red brick apartments atop plundered stores. They passed under the legs of a giant billboard that pictured beautiful people no one ever remembered seeing, not even in the early days before the die-off. The beautiful people on the billboard were smoking cigarettes. He wiped his sweaty palms on his jumpsuit. They cut down a narrow cobblestone street, the red and brown bricked buildings hugging the street. There he is, someone called from above. Three young girls were on the roof of one of the tenements, probably a vantage point from which to watch his jump without having to pay. He raised his hand and waved to his fans. Fans was the only way Fowler could think to describe them. It was one of those words that sat unused in that place in the back of his head because it never applied to anything. 
and now here, suddenly, it did. Fuller liked having fans. It put a swing on his step. Watch, Orchid said, pulling his hand. Fowler looked down just in time to sidestep a jutting femur someone had tried to stuff down a sewer. There was a skull as well, wedged into the too small sewer opening. Probably someone had found the bones in an apartment they wanted to live in. Still two blocks away, they reached the roadblocks the steel tribe had erected all around the tower to ensure everyone paid. It stuck in Fowler's craw that the steels would get ten percent of the gate and free admission given that they were the bastards who'd stolen the food in the first place. But a tribe as small as Fowler's could never pull off this sort of event without an alliance. At least it ensured there wouldn't be many gate jumpers. Few people thought saving one can of food was worth risking a trip off the edge. A block ahead, the crowd grew thicker and more boisterous. Fowler picked up his pace. There were more people packed in the street along the edge side of the tower than Fowler had ever seen together in one place. Many had dressed for the occasion in whatever passed for their finest, skirts, suits, colorful bandanas, cowboy boots. Most of it was worn, soiled, and wrinkled almost beyond recognition. It was depressing how the colors so vivid on day one were draining out of the world, replaced by the browns of dirt and rust. A roar went up as Fowler approached. He held up his hand, then noticed a strange mound in the weeds by the crumbling fountain. It took him a moment to recognize it as a pile of pillows and mattresses. He stopped short, pointed at the mound. A roar of laughter filled the air. Just in case, shouted Fish, who was standing close to the mound. It set off another round of laughter. It'll have to be a lot bigger than that if my chute doesn't open, Fowler shouted. His stomach was in knots. He wasn't in the mood for banter, but this jump was an excuse for people to gather and celebrate. That was at least part of the reason they were paying a can of food none of them could afford to pay. Many were probably hoping the parachute collapsed into a fat spinning tail and he plummeted 107 stories, he'd counted, to his death. But he was going to disappoint them. He was going to fly, not five stories off the roof of an apartment building this time, but on and on, like a bird, over the tops of buildings until he drifted softly back to earth amid a cheering crowd. Fowler squatted beside Daisy so he would be eye-level with her. Why don't you wait here with Butter? He pointed Butter out, sitting with Speedy on a blanket spread on the sidewalk. Daisy wrapped her arms around him. Fowler hugged her in return, fighting back tears. If things went wrong, he hated that Daisy would be here to witness it. Giving him one last squeeze, Daisy said, Please don't screw up. Having given him her vote of confidence, she joined Butter and Speedy on the blanket. Fowler and Orchid continued to the tower. Biter, the steel gang leader, was waiting at the foot of the steps outside. He was a remarkably handsome man, tall and muscular, like one of the men on the billboards, only less clean and wearing a dirty neon orange T-shirt instead of a suit. Word is we've got close to three hundred cans, Biter said, grinning. That many? Terrific. Worth risking my life over, no doubt about it. Spider nodded. Good, hang on to that thought as you're climbing. We don't want to issue refunds. I won't be taking the stairs down. I guarantee you that. Fowler's voice was shaking. While he and Orchid strode toward the tower, Fowler looked up. It was impossibly tall. He was afraid to think how he'd feel 
when he was at the top looking down. He pushed open a squealing door and stepped into the dark lobby. They skirted broken glass, sprayed from broken windows, and stopped at the stairwell. There's no point in you walking up all these steps with me. He waved toward the doors. Go on out and wait for the show. I'll see you in a couple of hours. Orchid looked so terribly sad, it broke Falder's heart. Is there anything I can say that will change your mind? Even if he wanted to, there was no way to back down now. If he did, in all likelihood the Steels would drag him up the steps and toss him off. But even if the Steels weren't involved, he would still jump. They needed food. Daisy needed food. No. Orchid's eyes filled with tears. If you're really going to do this, I want to be there with you. She held out her hand. I'll carry your gear. You'll need all of your strength with the jump. No, no, that's all right, Fowler said. I've got it. Orchid tugged the pack out of his hand. Give me that. It's a hundred flights. You're going to be so exhausted you won't know which way is down. Fowler let go of the pack. She was probably right. And, in any case, arguing with Orchid was futile. They headed up the first flight. Fowler's heart was thumping, his fingers tingling with anticipation. Orchid counted steps under her breath. Chapter 8 By the fiftieth floor, he was entirely spent and ready to give up. To celebrate reaching the halfway point, they rested. Fowler's head was pounding in time with his heart, his calves quivering. Orchid pulled his canteen from the pack, took a drink, then offered it to Fowler. He accepted it, took a long drink. Promise me you'll take care of Daisy if anything happens to me. Hmm. Orchid didn't look at him. He put a hand on her shoulder. I need to know you'll take care of Daisy. Orchid stood, Fowler's pack still slung over her shoulders. You'll know I'll do my best. But it's you she counts on. I know. He took a swig of water. His throat stayed dry no matter how much he drank. That's why I have to do this. By the eightieth floor he was numb, staggering like a drunk. He waited for Orchid, who was walking a half-flight behind him, counting her steps aloud. You should turn back. You have to climb down as many steps as you've climbed up. I'm afraid you're going to take a tumble and hurt yourself, and there'll be no one around to help you. Orchid laughed dryly. You're afraid I'm going to hurt myself? Yes. He wrapped one arm around Orchid. I'll wait for you in the street. If all goes well, I'll get there before you. She shook her head. I don't want to be on the stairs inside when you jump. She gestured toward the next flight, whispered something under her breath, meant only for her. Let's go. Sighing, Falter headed up the steps. When he reached the top, he collapsed, gasping. He was nauseous. His legs were quivering and the edges of his vision were gray. Orchid dropped beside him. When the worst of the nausea had passed, Fowler lurched to his feet, spat a few times onto the concrete to clear the phlegm from his mouth, and went to the edge. Most of it was ringed by a wall of transparent plastic, but two sections had broken off, leaving nothing but a waist-high wall. He changed his mind about jumping as soon as he looked down. The street 
was far, far, far below. Just three blocks beyond was the edge. The endless blue sky was staggering from this vantage point. He walked all around the perimeter, marveling at the breathtaking view, with Orchid trailing a few paces behind him, hands on her hips. The world seemed even smaller from up there, its cigar shape evident. He could trace the edge all the way around, could see every building, their heights flattened by the perspective. Even the scorched field of rubble at the far end of the world looked beautiful somehow. It wasn't often one was high enough to truly appreciate how small the world was. Hanging there in the enormous blue sky, it made you feel tiny, a speck on an insignificant speck. When he was finished enjoying the view, Fowler looked down again. What had he been thinking? He couldn't jump from here. He'd considered working his way up to the tower slowly, jumping from the roof of a six-story building, then ten, then fifty. But he hadn't seen any point once he got much above eight stories. All the mattresses in the world wouldn't save him if the parachute failed. In theory, jumping from this height wasn't much more complicated than jumping from a five-story building. But he realized now that the technical aspect was only part of the jump. There was also the psychological to consider. Can we go home now? Orchid asked. Fowler pulled the toy paratrooper out of his pack and set it on the ledge. You little fucker. What have you gotten me into? It was apropos that a toy had inspired this entire endeavor. The webbing that ran from elbow to waist on the paratrooper puffed out, blown by a heavy gust, and it fell over. If he didn't jump, he'd have to look Daisy in the eye and tell her she'd have to go ahead and starve because he was afraid. He turned to look at Orchid. I have to do it. I understand. I love you. I always have. The wind muffled her words. You're acting as if I'm already gone. Jelly on the pavement. Have a little faith. He lifted his arms, flapped them, trying to lighten the mood, maybe give himself some courage. Orchid didn't laugh. She stepped close and gave him a fierce hug. See you soon, he said. He could see the people below, speckles mottling the street and sidewalk, waiting, watching. Experimentally, he sat on the low ledge, swung his feet out over empty space. It took all of his willpower to keep from throwing himself back to the safety of the roof. The wind was hard, gusting on and off unpredictably. Could a gust blow him into the side of the building before he got his chute open? He'd have to open it very quickly, then use the webbing on his jumpsuit to coax himself away from the wall. The image calmed his pounding heart. He could drift on the breeze, the parachute a protective canopy above his head. He took a deep breath, looked out at the clouds passing, so impossibly huge and bright. Willing himself to keep his gaze out instead of down, he stuffed the paratrooper into his pocket, then drew his feet under him until he was squatting on the wall. A few deep breaths, then, arms outstretched for balance, he stood. The wind nudged him backward. He leaned into it to regain his footing. It stopped suddenly, and he lurched forward, almost falling, his heart chipping madly. He grinned at his terror. Falling was the whole point. Jump, he said aloud, 
Go ahead, goddammit, just jump. Fuller coiled, tensed, glanced down at the street. This was madness. It was too high. The restraints of his own sanity would never allow him to leap from this height. He climbed off the wall. Orchid, who had been squatting a dozen feet behind him, stood, her eyebrows raised. Any way he looked at it, he was a dead man. There was no way he could survive that jump, and if Biter didn't kill him, starvation would. Fuck it, he said. He climbed back onto the wall. If he was going to die anyway, why not die in style? Without allowing himself time to think, he jumped. Everything inside him clenched, his hands and fists, his jaw clamped, Fuller tumbled forward. It gave him a terrible full-on view of the street so far below. He kept rolling until he was plummeting headfirst, the glass exterior of the tower passing upside down in a blur. He was falling way too fast, faster than he'd imagined possible. His jumpsuit flapped so hard it was like being slapped. As he tumbled back upright, he remembered the chute. He reached back and yanked open the Velcro-fastened flap of the backpack in one swift, well-practiced motion. The chute flew out, followed by the six suspension lines. He squeezed his eyes shut, braced for a yank on his harness so jarring it might break his neck. He felt a jerk that slowed him momentarily. Then he kept falling. Above him, the chute snapped frantically in the wind. He opened one eye, peered up at the chute, and screamed. Only four of the suspension lines were attached. Two others were twisting around each other uselessly. The collapsed chute was doing nothing to slow his fall. Frantically, he began pulling everything toward him to try to reconnect it before he hit the ground, although the tiny sliver of his mind that was still rational knew it was hopeless. It was over. He was dead. He was going to slam to the pavement, then everything would go black. They would have a funeral and roll him off the edge, and his body would fall forever. His fingers froze on the lines as a glimmer of hope broke through his terror, unless he went off the edge. He'd seen birds gliding on the wind with their wings spread. Could he do the same? He released the suspension lines, gauged the distance to the edge as he stretched his arms and legs into an X. It worked. He drifted away from the tower. But what was the point? If he made it, he would still die. Maybe it was best to get it over with quickly. Arms and legs still spread, he coaxed his body to glide horizontally on the buffeting wind. The force of it nearly flipped him. He tipped left, then right, struggling to keep his arms from being thrown out of place. The fabric of his jumpsuit flapped wildly as the city glided by beneath him, even as it rose toward him, growing larger and better defined by the second. The wind was deafening, a vertical hurricane that jerked and bounced him. This was madness. Dying would be easier than hurtling into the void. He'd lose his mind long before he died of thirst. Yet he couldn't bring himself to give up to draw his limbs into a cannonball and let the pavement have him. His shoulders were burning from the strain as he reached out toward the edge of the world, his arms wide, his fingers splayed as if he could claw his way to it. In the streets below, some of the tiny figures had broken from the crowd and were headed toward the edge, following his trajectory. Too late, he realized another skyscraper was between him and the edge. Fowler twisted as he hurtled toward the glass face of it, changing his trajectory. He glided at an angle to the skyscraper, missed slamming into it by a matter of a dozen feet as he dropped toward a strip of black rooftops, a row of tenements that hung over the edge. For the briefest instant, 
He caught sight of people sprinting into the open, their heads craned upward, tracking him. He strained, trying to squeeze every last inch of vertical movement out of the webbing as the roof expanded. He could see detail, satellite dishes set along the roof, a wooden water tower. At the last instant, he threw his arms over his face and squawked in terror, his whole body flinching as he hurtled toward one last lousy span of roof. A bright burst of pain lanced his foot as it caught the edge of the roof and sent him spinning end over end, his field of vision filled alternately by red, brick, blue sky, then black rock, until, pinwheeling his arms wildly, he stopped flipping. He kept falling, though. The world slid past. As his heart hammered, his mouth cranked wide in a silent, breathless scream. This ends Disc 1, Faller, Disc 2. Chapter 1 Peter dragged his hand through his hair as he studied the tissue sections and sequences. His hair was oily as hell because he hadn't showered in three days. The data, however, were clean and beautiful. The tuberculosis-riddled human lung had come through the duplicator unaltered. The duplicate lung was genetically identical to the original, right down to epigenetic mutation, only it was free of tuberculosis 8. Beautiful, he said. I know, isn't it? Harry Wong said, grinning. Someone had a radio on nearby, tuned to an oldies station playing Open Arms by Journey. It seemed unlikely background music for a monumental scientific breakthrough. As techs and colleagues passed, some brushing against Peter in the tight maze of lab islands, Peter scrolled to the last page of the printout, which summarized the results. It's all good, Doc. Right down to the fine print, Harry said. Peter looked up. Did you just call me Doc? Harry gave Peter a big, toothy, semi-sarcastic grin. Yes, I did. No, don't even think about it. Peter pointed his pen at Harry's face. In grad school, you had just about everyone calling me Sandy. Lowering the pen, he closed the printout. We're weeks away from being able to provide workable replacement organs. Can you believe this? It's pretty damned unbelievable, Harry said. Peter held out his hand to Harry, palm up. Harry gave him a quizzical look. Will you dance with me? Peter took Harry's hands and danced him between the lab stations. You drink too much zing again? Harry asked, somewhat reluctantly moving his hips to the music. Yeah, probably. Peter did feel awfully full of pep and verve. Don't you dare twirl me, Harry said, as people began to notice and laughter rose around the lab. The thing was, when would Ugo's team be ready with the radical transplant procedure? If they couldn't get infected organs out and clean duplicate organs back in quickly and economically, not enough of the infected would benefit from this breakthrough. Have you seen an update on infection rates today? He asked Harry. Harry stopped dancing. You don't want to see them. The Peterson-Jance prion is out of control in the Ukraine and Romania. TB8 has crossed into Nepal and Bangladesh. Shit. A now familiar jangling dread hit Peter, dampening his high spirits. Damn Saudi Arabia's lying ass. And Saudi Arabia wasn't even one of the combatants. 
They'd lied and lied about the extent of their oil reserves, and finally left India high and dry. If not for them, India wouldn't have thrown trillions of rupees at Mozambique to effectively steal Russia's stake in Mozambique's natural gas reduction. Everyone had been afraid Russia would respond with military force. Instead, surprise, they released a deadly disease on India. Insanity had reached a new height. Harry, can I borrow you? Jill Sanders called from four or five stations away. Harry patted Peter's back. Nice work, Doc. Want to celebrate tonight? Sounds good. I'll see if Melissa's free. And if you call me Doc again, I'm going to cut your salary in half. It's never just the guys anymore, Harry said, raising his voice over the din of the lab as he walked away. You always have to bring the wife along. What are you talking about? You like her more than you like me. You got that right, Harry shouted. Navigating islands of equipment, Peter headed back to his workspace, sectioned off from the rest of the vast floor by three semi-transparent walls that began at knee level and ended a foot above Peter's head. The fourth wall, a window that faced fifty-foot-wide swats of lawn sitting between their lab and a crumbling factory building. The light was fading, lending an ominous tinge to the aged and broken building. The plan had been to eventually convert all of the old factory buildings to labs as part of the cross-pollination project, but only four had been completed. Squatting, Peter opened his mini-fridge, pulled another bottle of Zing energy drink from row upon row that filled the fridge. He was about to slam the fridge door closed when he noticed interlopers. Three squarish plastic bottles were tucked toward the back of the far right row of roundish Zing bottles. Peter pulled one out and examined it. It was a seaweed-colored liquid called green goodness, a drinkable army of fruits and vegetables packed with antioxidants, vitamins A and C. Chuckling, Peter set it back in the fridge. Melissa strikes again. All she ever drank was diet Sprite, yet she worried about Peter getting enough nourishment. Over the general din of the lab, Peter heard burbling near the ceiling among the rusted steel beams that were part of the original World War II artillery factory. Pigeons in the rafters again. They didn't mind them, but they drove Ugo nuts. The guy hated animals. He would deny it to the end, especially if Isabella, his animal-loving wife, sister of the provider of green goodness, was with him. But you could see him growing irritable when an animal was nearby, except when it was being served to him on a bed of rice. Dr. Sandoval? Peter went to his door, smiled at the tech standing near the duplicator with a screen open, data flashing across it. Hey, Arthur, what's up? It didn't work, Arthur said. Peter only glanced at the two identical human livers laid out on a wheeled medical cart near the delivery ducts before diving into the numbers. He was a theoretical physicist. It would be Ugo's job to examine the livers themselves. Wasn't fooled, eh? Peter asked, scanning the data. No matter how cleverly they tried to disguise foreign bodies as part of a biological entity, or make cells in a biological entity appear to be foreign bodies, they couldn't fool the duplicator. The results provided fascinating clues about the nature of his duplicator, about what was going on when they sent something through the miniature wormhole, but in terms of being able to produce a cancer-free, rejection-proof 